I believe it to be important uh, to know not only what someone has said, but who it is that has said it. And so along that line of thinking this morning, uh, we are going to take some time to introduce the book of 1 John. We won't go uh, through chapter 1 verse by verse today. We'll pick that up next week. But today I'm trying to emphasize uh, a couple of things. Number one, who John is, and then number two, why he wrote this book. The man, the apostle, the disciple, John, uh, along with the rest of Jesus' disciples, with the exception of Judas, was sentenced to a martyr's death. He was placed in a cauldron of boiling oil, and yet he lived. He was banished, as many of us know, to a a colorless island named Patmos and ended up living a very full life, giving to us not only the Gospel of John, these three epistles, and the book of Revelation. Some commentators maintain that 3 John, we have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that 3rd John is actually the last book of the Bible that was written. John himself was a native of Bethsaida. He was the youngest of his parents, and he was the youngest of the disciples. Before his uh, banishment to the Isle of Patmos, historians tell us that John, after Jesus' crucifixion and burial and resurrection, that John made his home in Jerusalem committed to caring for Jesus' mother until 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. John then picked up, made his headquarters in Ephesus. His pupils included such names as Polycarp, Papias, and Ignatius. They were bishops in the early church. But we are told that before John was banished to the Isle of Patmos with his headquarters in Ephesus there, he made his rounds all throughout Asia Minor to the churches, which is modern-day Turkey. And can you ex uh, imagine the excitement of the little congregations everywhere they were, some larger, some not, meeting outside of synagogues, meeting on hillsides, meeting wherever they could, knowing that Christ had resurrected, and yet there were these uh, handful of men that were still leading the thing called the body of Christ, and, and John was still alive, and he was going to come to a church. Can you imagine the excitement? And the excitement would build as, as John would walk into that gathering and historians tell us that though they wanted much education and teaching about the scrolls and the scriptures, John would often just stand to his feet and say, little children love one another. 
And that should come really as no surprise. Uh, John was known as the apostle of love. He referred to himself, <clears throat> excuse me, in his own gospel, chapter 13, verse 23, he referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Now, you and I might ask the question, <clears throat> was this because John saw himself as uh, someone Jesus loved above the others? I know in my early years of reading that, I, I would think, well, boy, that he, you know, Jesus must have loved him a little bit more. Nobody else is mentioned in the Gospels like that. But the truth of the matter is, is that no, John didn't see himself as one loved above the others, but rather it is suggested that John was amazed that Jesus would love someone like him. Before Christ's uh, intervention into his life, and we have a, a small picture of what John was like, we know that when uh, some Sumerians failed to respond to the ministry of Jesus and the disciples in the way in which John thought they ought to, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 54, Luke tells us that it was John who turned to Jesus and said, Lord, let's call down fire from heaven and, and blow them up. Not that anybody here has ever thought that about anybody else. But he was a little bit, you know, hot-headed, so to speak. Yes, very zealous, but sometimes that zeal turned into uh, uh, aggression toward others in a negative way. Evidently, he was highly flammable. But something happened to John along the way. As he spent time with the Lord, over the process of those, those three years, and he was gathered with uh, the others when Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And he was present in the upper room when the Spirit of God fell. And, and John, through those processes of time and relationship with the Lord himself, John changed. Just as you and I change as we commit ourselves to spend time with the Lord. That he's not some commodity over here on the right or left. That he's not... You know, well, I go to him when it's really hard. Or I go to him when I need something. Or I go to him on Sunday mornings to go to church. Or whatever. No, it's an abiding, if I might suggest that to us this morning. That as we abide in him, there's a, a transformation that takes place in our lives where we begin to take upon ourselves more of the reflection of Christ. Is that so in your life? Because that was so in John's life. 
the book itself really is divided into three uh, divisions. Chapters 1 and 2 deal with what we would call uh, the light of God. As John focuses upon Jesus as the light of the world. Chapters 3 and 4 deal with what we will see as uh, Jesus as the love of God. And chapter 5 summarizes the first epistle focused upon the life of God uh, in the person and through the person of Jesus Christ. So John, the man, the apostle, the disciple, the beloved. Now, why did John write this book? We know, as the scriptures tells us, that uh, holy men were moved by the Holy Spirit. John was obviously moved by the Holy Spirit to write all, all of his books, his gospel, these three epistles, and the book of Revelation. But specifically, why did John write this book? There are four reasons that we will look at this morning consecutively and in that order that John wrote this book. And the first one comes to us, if I could draw your attention, down to chapter 1 to verse 4, where we read, John writes and he says, And these things I write to you that your joy may be full. First reason. Now, the Masoretic text and the majority, rather, the majority text translates the word your to our. You can embrace either one. Basically, what the Spirit of God is saying that John wrote the book for is so that our joy, the life of a Christian, your joy might be full, may be full. First reason. So as you read through this book, and I, I exhort you to read the entirety of this book this week. It, you can sit down and in probably 10 or 15 minutes read through the first epistle like that. As we go through this book, John's intent and John's hope and the spirit of God's hope, my hope and God's hope is that if there's a need for the joy in our lives to become full or fuller, that that's going to happen. But it's important to recognize that there is a difference between happiness and joy. Okay? Happiness is, it deals primarily with our mind and our emotions and is a condition of mind and emotions that is dependent on your circumstances your circumstances that are going on around you. Things are good, I'm happy. Things are well, I'm happy. What was it Dory said? Think happy thoughts, think happy thoughts, think happy thoughts. Con dependent on your circumstances around you. That's happiness. But joy is not happiness. Joy is different. Joy is a condition of soul that is independent of circumstance and can be constant. How's your joy this morning? 
Did you walk in the house of God filled with the joy of the Lord? I remember years ago and heard it in a, a Pentecostal church in Oakland when I was growing up. Somebody sang the song, Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Well, okay. How's your joy? John writes that it might be full. So the old acrostic remains true. J stands for Jesus. And that Jesus should be the, or is to be, the fountainhead of life. He's to be the central focus of our lives. He is to be the person that every other part of our life spins around. And that's so different than in our Western culture today, me, me, me. So Jesus first. He's to have first place. O stands for others. Now, it's been documented, but also just said tongue-in-cheek that if you'd really like to make your miserable do the fo- yourself miserable, do the following. Focus only on yourself, cater only to yourself, analyze mostly yourself, and worry constantly about yourself. Recipe for being miserable. That's why O is in the middle of this thing called others. But laying your life down for others, being willing to serve others, to focus on others, and being a vessel through which your life can bless others is a recipe for being filled with joy. And at the end of this acrostic, in its appropriate position is the letter Y, which stands for you. It's last in the equation and in its proper place. Doesn't mean we're completely selfless, but our priorities. In its proper place is a recipe for joy. John says, Here's the first reason I'm writing this book is so that you, Christian, you, believer, you, the one that has decided to follow Jesus Christ, that your joy will be full. Powerful. There's a second reason he writes the book, and we find it, In the second chapter of this book, if you want to look there with me, chapter 2, verse 1, notice what he says. He says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. Second reason for writing the book to Christians, to the body of Christ, is so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, and we're thrown this morning right into headlong, I find it amazing, headlong into the subject of sin 
in the life of a Christian. I mean, you're thrown right into it. Now, John is dealing with what we do. He's not dealing with who we are. I hope you've got this concept uh, solid in your heart of hearts and in your biblical theology is that we are sin and we commit sins. Who we are as Christians, once we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean we now become sinless. It just means that what we were has, has been dealt with at the cross of Calvary. David said it in the 51st Psalm. He said, I know that in sin my mother did conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother did conceive me. What was David talking about? Psalm 51. His, his mother wasn't a prostitute. He was conceived through the natural processes of, of being wed. Jesse was his father. So what's he mean? He means that we are born into this world sin. And that's what Christ came to redeem us back from. No, John is dealing with sins committed. The word, if you're taking note this morning, in the Greek language is hamartia. It means what? To miss the mark. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not miss the mark. And I'd like to... uh, say to you and have us kind of lock into it is that um, all have, all do, all will, all can, all do, all have. Okay, we're going to walk through that. First of all, all have sinned. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All do commit sins. Paul wrote in the seventh chapter of the same book of Romans, verse 18, he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. The great apostle Paul had that wrestle within him that at times the flesh wanted to not please God. And he wanted to please God, but sin would continue, he would find within himself this wrestle. Have you ever found that wrestle within yourself? All have sinned, all do sin, all will sin. In this first chapter, in the 10th verse of the uh, same book, if you'll notice, verse 10, chapter 1 If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Pretty common. I think you can go out on the street today and the moment you mention sin to someone, they'll 
Well, yeah, we're all sinners. Okay. Yes, all will sin, all do sin, all have sin. But, contrary-wise, if you're writing notes, all can live in such a way that they are purposed to please God. Colossians 1.10, Paul wrote to the Colossian church, he said, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's a resolve in the human heart that I know I will make mistakes, I will miss the mark at times, but I'm resolved in my heart to live in such a way that I am pleasing the Lord and fruitful. All can. All do have the same resources by which that can be a reality. Those resources being the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God indwelt in us. The Word of God, David wrote in Psalm 119, verse 11 and 9, he said, How can a young man cleanse his way? Question mark. By taking heed according to your word. How can we cleanse our way? By, by taking heed. That means to, to absorb, to look intently with, to latch onto his word. And David goes on to say, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The first resource that we all have is the word of God. The second resource is the spirit of God. Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 6, verse 7. He said, knowing this, knowing what? Knowing this, I'll read the verse, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Yeah, hallelujah. We all have the same resource of the Spirit of God indwelt in us. And what that means is, yes, at times we will miss the mark, but we are no longer under the bondage of sin. We are no longer under the power of sin to obey it. All can live with a purpose to please God. All do have the same resources, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and I love this part, the most beautiful part of all, all of us have the same advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know what happens when I miss the mark? Speak of me. Oh God, forgive me. And that thought of condemnation comes into my mind. You know, you, I won't even repeat what goes on in this brain, but what I do know is that Jesus stands before the Father and he goes, Father, remember my blood. It's been shed to pay for the penalty of that and to take it, it's punishment away. 
He advocates for you and I. John says, and if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. You know what that advocate is, right? It, um, in our court system, we have something called advocates, right? You got the judge, you got attorneys, you got advocates. And a, an attorney, that's a whole different word in our culture today, but what an attorney is supposed to do is advocate to the judge on your behalf. Jesus stands before the Father and says, Father, I have paid the penalty for them missing the mark. Second reason he wrote the book is so that we may not sin. And if we do, we have an advocate. Third reason for the book this morning, he wanted to warn the Christians uh, in the day and age in which he lived. Remember, he lived, uh, history tells us, to the age of 100. And he wanted to warn Christians of the deception that would come through teaching. Look at verse 26 of chapter 2. Verse 26 of chapter 2, he writes... These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So John could see the clouds of deception coming. One commentator puts it this way. John knew there was deception among the early Christians and it concerned him. He had a passion to keep them consistent with God's message of truth. He, he knew there would be a time within the framework of the dispensation of the church that deceptive teachings would come in. And we dealt a, quite a bit with that in First uh, and Second Peter as well. That was on Peter's heart. But it goes uh, always with saying that how do you know that you're walking in the truth? I hope it's not because you come to Calvary Chapel Valley Springs. I hope it's not because Pastor Art teaches on Sunday. How do you know that what you're walking in, the gospel upon which you have said yes to, is true? How do you know that? I hope it's not because you, well, I, I, I belong to the Protestant denomination. Or maybe you belong to... The Catholic denomination, or the Lutheran denomination, or the Methodist. How do you know? You ever ask yourself that question? There is so much deceptive teaching out there today. You are to be a Berean, to search the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Don't take my word for it. I'm grateful you come and listen and I pray to God that you get something out of our time through the scripture. And believe because God said his word won't return to him void that you do and that you will. But John knew that there's a lot of deception that comes. Now notice that's the third reason he wrote the book. 
notice his solution in verse 27. Have your eyes go down to verse 27. Notice he says, but the anointing which you have received from him, capital H-I-M, abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. What's he talking about? He's talking about the anointing of the Spirit of God that comes upon every born-again believer. With the Spirit of God in you, a, a word of God in your hand, you really don't need someone else. Not to say that teachers aren't a good thing in the body of Christ. In fact, we're told that we are... Teachers are one of the gifts given to the body of Christ, and we will be given, given a stricter judgment because of our role in the body of Christ. But with a Bible in your hand, the Spirit of God in your life, guess what? God will teach you. Years ago, when I was on staff at Warehouse Ministries in Jackson. Uh, my pastor at the time, George Stathis, was um, looking at property in which to move from Water Street uh, to Pine Grove. And he wanted to get a vision for different facilities that were in rural mountainous areas. And so he invited us to take a drive to Oregon one weekend to uh, a church called Applegate, Applegate Christian Fellowship. John Corson had taught there for many years. It was in Calvary Chapel. And so what a delight it was to go, and we had a night of worship. We had communion in the morning. But that night that we were there for the teaching and the worship, uh, after the service concluded, we wanted to go look in their bookstore, of course, because bookstores were a big thing. And we went in this bookstore, and the worship leader, Rick Vestas, came up to me once. He says, hey, what are you looking for? And I, I said, well, I just you know, want to pick up a book as a memento. And uh, he handed me a book about Christian music, but he also handled me something called The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. You can get it online. But it's a, it's a detailed, uh, not even a commentary. It gives you, a, it's a detailed reference book for every verse in the Bible. It tells you other verses that are related to that verse from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Treasury of scripture knowledge. And Rick tells me, he says, you know, if I was on a desert island and there were only two books I could have, he says, I would have the Bible and the treasury of scripture knowledge. Why? Because the spirit of God in us, with the word of God by us, is enough. The anointing which you have received of him, 
he says, is in you and will abide in you. Warning about the teaching, deceptive teachings that will come. Reminding the body of Christ that it's possible for them to live in a life that they may not sin. It's possible for them to, in those missing of the marks, to remember the advocate that they have in Jesus Christ and that their joy would be full. Fourth reason for the book comes to us all the way at the end of this epistle, chapter 5, if you will turn there with me. Chapter 5, verse 13, Paul gives us the fourth and final reason for this book. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, and here's where you can underline it, that you may know that you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. His fourth reason is so that the believer would know for certain that they have eternal life promised to them. And because of that assurance and that knowledge that they would continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Will I make it to heaven? Have I done the right thing? Have I believed the right thing? You know, when you get closer to the end of your life, it becomes even more important to know that, to have that assurance. It takes the fear away. Sherry and I have a saying is that we're not afraid of dying. We're just a little concerned about the process. <laughs> I hope you can say that this morning. You're not afraid of death. Might be a little concerned of how it will go when it comes. But do you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life promised to you? This is why he's writing this book. And if you don't know that for certain this morning, I exhort you and admonish you not to leave this building until you've committed yourself to the Savior. You can know that for sure. You know, what's interesting to me is you think about the world religions. I'm reading a book recently called uh, A Door That No Man Can Shut, and it's about how God is at work in these, this last decade of human history uh, in the Muslim world, because Muslims rely upon the Quran for their understanding of, of heaven and the route to heaven and what will happen in afterlife when they die. And you know what is very clear in the Quran? There's no guarantee. The entire book, filled with do's and don'ts, of which an entire culture lives by those do's and don'ts, they have no guarantee in the Quran. 
You think of Judaism. Okay, remember, Jesus was a Jew, practiced Judaism. Jesus wasn't a Christian. God isn't a Christian. Love that saying, because it's true. Judaism is a system of belief that still awaits the coming of a Messiah. And within the confines of the system of Judaism, the way a Orthodox Jew today who embraces Judaism seeks to prepare themselves, his or herself, for afterlife is it's a balance of good deeds versus bad deeds. And they're trusting that on that final day when they are called to meet their maker, that their good deeds are going to outweigh their bad deeds. I don't know who's keeping record. <laughs> I mean, maybe they have a book at home. You go home and you say, good deed today. You know, oh, bad deed yesterday, bad deed yesterday, bad deed yesterday. Good deed versus bad deeds. That's what Judaism offers as a path to assurance I think we, many of us might agree that Roman Catholicism offers a lot of question about whether or not I truly will go to heaven when I die. I won't get into their theological reasons, but they have a lot of tradition and dogma that if not thoroughly practiced, brings doubt upon uh, the worshiper. Did you know that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way in which a man, a woman, a young person can be assured that on that final moment that they will be catapulted into the presence of Almighty God and be assured of eternal salvation. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Remember what Jesus said in, in John's gospel. John recorded it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He didn't say I am a way. He didn't say I am a part of the way. He didn't say I'm, I join a whole bunch of ways. He said I am the way. And it remains true for you and I this morning. And John echoes that knowing that the church needs to hear it often. I love what one commentator says. He says the need to hear the simple gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ does not end once one embraces the gospel. We benefit by it, are assured by it, and are helped to continue in it as we hear it and embrace it over and over again. We should never get tired of hearing how we are promised Eternity with God through the person, the work, and faith in Christ alone.
So that's why John writes this book. It's going to unfold for us as we go through it in the weeks ahead. But so that you and I would know we have eternal life. So that you and I would be warned about the deception of teachings that will come. So that you and I, when we sin, remember we have an advocate. And that you and I, our joy would be full. I trust the Lord has spoken to each one of us this morning about those things. As we prepare and come to the communion table, what better time to ask ourselves, Lord, have I remembered all four of those things succinctly, deeply, and realistically in my life? Will you join me as we pray? The men are going to distribute the elements. Let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Lord, as we come again this hour, it is such a blessing to be reminded that you desire that our joy be full. Your heart is that we not be deceived. You know that at times we miss the mark. And you stand before the Father to advocate for us. And in that advocation, reminding us of the assurance of our eternal destiny. And Lord, we can know that to be so and remember it to be so because of these elements before us this morning. The bread that represents your body the cup that represents your blood, given for us, shed for us, that we might know and live in the light of your love. What great love you have demonstrated for us this morning. We are here to thank you and to remember, in Jesus' name, amen.